Number 9. God's Mission, 4th Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to commence with Lesson 9, Mission to the Powerful, in the quarter on God's Mission, My Mission. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator. Karen is going to offer our opening prayer. Dearly beloved Father God, once again we come and pause to focus our scattered thoughts and senses on you and to tune our distracted minds into your continual presence in our lives. And we thank you for your perfect and gracious love towards us and towards each one of your precious daughters and sons around the world. We can't stop thanking you for this incredible love because you will never stop pouring it into our hearts and into every part of our being, our thoughts, our relationships and our lives forever. And it is this abundant, beautiful, extravagant and infinite love that we long to share with others, whoever they are, with those who have power and those who feel powerless, with those who are rich and those who are poor, with those who are imprisoned and those who are free, those who are educated and those who've never gone to school, with the young and the old and the women and men in every country, tribe and language and family. Because your loving Father heart doesn't see the differences that we see or the obstacles that we imagine. And your love has no favorites. We are all your precious children. Welcomed, accepted, forgiven, comforted, honored and celebrated. And thank you, beloved Father, for blessing Daniel, our guide, as he leads us on our journey of discovery today. May we be filled with your desire to reach the rich and the powerful as much as the poor and the helpless. And may you inspire our thoughts and our words as we discuss this lesson together. And may you grow our hearts so that we learn how to share your incredible love with the lonely, love-hungry and hurting people around us that can be found in every strata of our community. Teach us how we pray today and every day. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. This is lesson number nine. So we talked in the previous lesson about the mission to the needy, the poor. And the answer was, you need to address their needs and mingle with them and get their sympathy and win their confidence that you are trying to help. And then you need to connect the need with the mission. There are too many needs around the world and you can't fulfill all of them. And there are limited resources, both your personal, the institutional, as the church, and even governmental. So, as Jesus says, you will always have poor with you. You can't solve that problem this side of eternity. And so, to connect the need and the mission, what is it that we can do and can't do, is very important. So, we talked about that in the previous lesson, and now we come to mission to the powerful. And it's easy to fall into two extremes. So the one was already in the Old Testament, that if people are rich and powerful, that means that they have the sanction of God, the approval of God, and that means somehow they are closer to God than anybody else. And popularity or wellness gospel nowadays walks along those lines and considers people who are well off as people especially blessed by God. In a complex world, you know that it's not always the case. And so either people inherited their money and their riches, or some got it in a nefarious, dishonest way, and they are blessed because of the scheming that they succeeded in. The other extreme is to see them as cursed because the fact that they are rich shows they are not on God's side and they are going to hell anyway. Now, every time I go to a local church, I hear during the first section of the worship service, people talking about what should we do for unemployed, for immigrants, for beggars, for this and that people. Very seldom I hear if I go to London churches, someone saying, what do we do for people in Notting Hill where Madonna has a house and one house would cost 30 plus million dollars and upwards? People somehow assume that there is nothing we can do or should do for them because the fact that they are rich already means that they are going to help. Now, as the statement of purpose in the lesson says, God is concerned about the salvation of rich and powerful as much as he is for that of weak and needy. And so let's explore this week God's mission to the rich and powerful. All right, the lesson for Sunday deals with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we are not going to read the four chapters of Daniel. It would take too much time. But if you go in your mind through the chapters one to four, Of course, chapter 4 is the last one where Nebuchadnezzar appears. Do you see any progression? 
Do you see how God is trying to work with these people and with Nebuchadnezzar and how he tries to win him on his side? What would you say? What kind of progression on the activity of God do you see in Daniel chapters 1 to 4? Iris? What struck me when you set the stage just a moment ago is the fact that Daniel had no intention to go to Nebuchadnezzar. He was basically dragged to Babylon against his will. It was really a dire situation. And I don't think that he was thinking about it in terms of witnessing at first. <laughs> But he was committed to being true to who he was. And inadvertently, he witnessed to all of those around him. That was his supervisors first, the lower people in Nebuchadnezzar's court system or palace system. And I think through repeated encounters, God was able to cut through the hard shell of a man who was used to resorting to violence. And ultimately, his heart was moved and melted so that he came to worship the God of heaven that had manifested himself so powerfully by seeing Daniel's friends in that furnace, that fiery furnace, and by encountering someone who was bigger than his big ego. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Iris. No surprise on the part of Daniel that he is not too eager. He's there on the king's court, so there is a great future for him there in Jerusalem, high position as a part of royal household and service of the king. And then he's made eunuch. He's forcibly removed to a foreign country and all his dreams collapse. And usually you don't have fond feelings for people who do these things to you. And the message of Jeremiah 29, that you pray for the city that brought destruction to you so that the city prospers. You bring peace and shalom and prosperity to the city that brought war and destruction to your city. Gets through to Daniel and whether he heard it or not, he exactly responds in a way that in spite of the circumstances, he's going to treat them differently. And there in chapter one, you see that God gives Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. So God is using Nebuchadnezzar in spite of the fact that he's a pagan king, that he has power issues. He's obviously a narcissist. He sets up things for the refugees, the exiles from Israel. He gives them the name. And while the Hebrew names referenced the God of Israel, like Daniel, God is my judge, Belteshazzar, Belet, the wife of Marduk, protects the king. So he gives them the names Hananiah, Yahweh has given, and Shadrach means I am very fearful of the Babylonian God, and Meshach, I am of little account, instead of Mishael, who is like God, and of course Azariah, the one whom Yahweh helps, so you have this L or I-A-H, Ayah, there, and Abednego is the servant of the Shining One. So he sets up the food for them. So the same Hebrew words are used in the Daniel 1 as God uses in Genesis 1 in the creation story. So he acts as a powerful monarch. The people, Daniel and his friends, decide to draw the line somewhere. They cannot choose the topics, subjects, the courses at the University of Babylon. So if they have divination from the animals or astrology predicting from the stars, things that Pentateuch clearly forbids, they know that University of Babylon, they have to take these courses, these classes, and they decide to draw the line somewhere. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Jerusalem. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And God gave to these four young men skills and knowledge. So the word gave will be crucial in that first chapter. And Daniel 1 verses 18 to 20. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, what's the lesson from Daniel 1 in ministering to the powerful? Henry? It's a big idea that the lesson is that God makes no distinction of persons, that he is reaching out to the powerful in this exactly the same way. And interestingly enough, it is not mentioned in the lesson, at least on the verses that are for this lesson, but in Jeremiah chapter 27, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And this is about 60 years before, approximately, to the invasion. So God is already working on him and using him in order to work with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, because it's God's mission. And again, he is using a pagan, powerful man in order to reach the Jehovah-worshipping Jehoiakim king in order to call him as well. So, yeah, he's using multiple ways in order to reach anybody, powerful or not powerful. Okay, thank you. But the fact that God gave Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, that he calls him his servant, is that God can use even Nebuchadnezzar. God can use even powerful and mighty people. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he won because of his superior military tactic or power or advantage over the small country of Israel, but the Bible gives you the perspective. No, he won because God wanted him to win. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is incorporating Israel into his kingdom, and the Bible shows you that God has a plan to incorporate Babylon into God's kingdom. So God wants to incorporate even the rich and powerful into his kingdom. They are not excluded. And when Daniel finds a way how to deal. Notice he is not one-sided fundamentalist in a sense, I can't do anything. Everything is against my convictions. So he finds a way. He talks to the supervisor, the chief of Unix, and he finds a way. He comes up with a suggestion. Let's try this. And when Daniel shows initiative and constructive spirit, God gave Daniel favor. And as a result, he, God, they can work together, and God gave Daniel and the three friends skills and knowledge so that they can get attention of the king. Neil? It comes down to the expression that we've used time after time. All things work together for good of them that love the Lord. Daniel loved the Lord. He and his three friends were given what they needed to excel. Nebuchadnezzar was being used. If we take a look at historically, only after the Babylonian captivity did we find that the Jews are monotheistic. And then to take it even one step farther, those that didn't go back to Jerusalem, where do you think that the wise men got the information to go to Jerusalem looking for Jesus? So all of this works out in the plans. Okay, thank you, Livius. You started asking earlier about a progression between chapters 1 to 4. And here in chapter 1, it says in verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. I wonder if Daniel was a vegetarian before this, or if he just decided to not participate in the food offered to idols and the sacrifices and the whatever the debauchery that the king ate. And so there's a very simplistic start here, and it's like diet, like his principles are kind of being tested here. And it's just interesting that it starts off with what he eats. We do not know from the text why they refused the king's food. Was it because it was against Leviticus 11, so the clean, unclean food laws? Was it because the food was offered to idols? Or as the text seems to indicate more in verse 5 and 8, that it was set for them. So he decides, just as God sets things in the creation story, Nebuchadnezzar acts here as the one who determines what's happening. The interesting thing is that they are willing to compromise on the subjects at the University of Babylon, but they draw the line with the food and they say, we are not going to compromise here. And there's a story in 1 Samuel 20 about Jonathan, who has not come to the king's table. And Saul was very upset with him about that. But the four young men decide to draw the line somewhere. And God, instead of saying, guys, I am so upset with you, he says, I can work with these guys. I fully respect this. And so 
their faithfulness is the way to get the attention of the king. So talking about the progression, why is chapter one important? Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem because he wants to incorporate Israel into his kingdom. But he's completely unaware that a bigger plan is at work. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was incorporate Israel into his kingdom. But God has a plan to incorporate Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar into God's kingdom. And not only he gave Jerusalem into his hands, he gave skills and knowledge to Daniel and favor so that he, Nebuchadnezzar, notices these people. They get his attention. You are not going to witness to rich and powerful unless you come with quality goods. They deliver. Those guys deliver. Rich and powerful respect excellence. And that's why in whatever we do at Pinole, the quality is very important to us because it reflects a little bit of the character of God. If you have substandard product, you appeal only to a small segment of the market. Some people will be happy for it, but the large segment of the markets will be completely left out. Sherry. I was just thinking of the emotional part of it. When you think of all these young men had gone through and the dashing of their dreams, of their expectations, of their future, and yet they were able to somehow be flexible enough to trust God enough to not be so despondent or angry or retaliatory that they were able to be used by God. And I think that's something that we can look at today too. Sometimes some horrible things happen and it's hard to overcome either the anger or the retaliation or just the depression and the feeling that all is lost. When you look at what's happening here, you realize God had something magnificent in mind for them. All they had to do was be willing to get past that anger, that retaliation, to trust God that he could walk with them into the future in some important ways, and to trust that and keep walking even in the dark. I'm very impressed, and I think it made a huge difference in what they were able to accomplish and what God could trust them to do. Yes, that's the second point I had in my notes, Sherry. Excellent, excellent. It's very important. So, You need to understand every Jew has a duty to get married and to produce the family. Now, Daniel, this opportunity is taken away for him forcibly. They make him a eunuch and he knows he never is going to get married. He never is going to have a family. Most probably at this stage of life, he had a girlfriend if he was not married yet. Obviously, during the siege of Jerusalem, she's either killed or raped. And that part is taken. These people went through a personal tragedy, but they process it in such a way that they find a constructive way how to work with the court of Babylon. Difficult circumstances can either break you or make you. And this is important that they learn the unfairness of life and the things that happen to them which are beyond their control, they still process in such a way that they can be a blessing to the court, to the king, Babylonian kingdom, the occupying power, and to their own nation and to their own cause and God. And so it's so important that it can be so easily overwhelmed by the injustices of the world and the bad things that happen to you, then, uh, yeah, you can survive and be saved, but you are no good for blessing anyone else because of the damage that was done to you and your emotions and the way of processing. The fact that they can draw a line in the sand and say, yeah, in these circumstances, we can't influence and choose this. This is beyond our control, so we'll comply. But here is the power of choice. We are going to exercise it. And God respects that choice and accepts it. And that's amazing. Nancy? These young men, their experiences were very much like Joseph's. And he also had, in all his trials, taken out of his family, thrown in prison after 10 years working for Potiphar. He showed, too, fortitude in the trial and also fidelity in everything he did. And then he later got Pharaoh's attention that God had a plan for him for Pharaoh in Egypt, showing love. And just like you said, Daniel, in the last lesson, how we're to join God's mission, it's not our mission. And to me, these young men, Joseph and Daniel and his three friends, show me how these men, through all this disappointment, they were willing to pick up their bootstraps and join God's mission. Thank you. Because it wasn't their plan. Yeah, very much so. So as we know from Jeremiah 29, there were two approaches. How do you live in exile? How do you live in Babylon? Now, the Babylon mentality is to conform to the Babylonian dream so that they are 
assimilated into the Babylonian culture and that they live the Babylonian dream and then they will not rebel anymore against Babylon. Now, this is not an option for them, but the other option, which was very popular with the Jewish exiles in Babylon, was to withdraw from the culture, have nothing to do with them. And this is the way to show faithfulness to God. Notice Daniel and his friends choose to engage with the culture. And that's why God can use them. Way too many people in our days feel that the way to accomplish God's mission is to get away from culture, from cities, from society, and have nothing to do with them. Now, strike out those people. They are not going to reach rich and powerful. You have to engage with the culture, as Daniel and his friends did, in a constructive way. And then God can use you to reach out to people that could not be reached otherwise. That's the lesson from chapter one. You have to offer quality and you have to engage with the culture. You are there on the radar screen of the powerful. In chapter two, any lessons quickly that you can see in Daniel chapter two? We said that they already learned hepatoscopy from the liver, divination, interpreting the dreams. And there comes the dream. The Chaldeans say to the king, there is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands, only gods, and their dwelling is not with the mortal. How is God engaging Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two? Iris? He meets him where he is at, and that is his mystical belief system. So since he believes in the supernatural and dreams, he gives him a dream, but he also exposes basically the ignorance of his advisors that have all been going through his school. And Daniel does not take credit for the part that God is responsible for. He makes it very clear that this is something only that the God of heaven can only reveal. And he delivers the message that God is the one who changes the times and seasons, deposes kings and sets up kings. He gives the wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding, and he reveals the deep and hidden things. So there are certain things that the University of Babylon cannot teach you, and that comes only from God. So he gives the credit where the credit is due. Very well said, Aris. Thank you. Henry? Chapter 2 tells me that there is no one and only approved way to reach from God. He can use anything, even something that we may consider unorthodox, as to reach somebody to be understood. Okay, let's read verse 47. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So, king recognizes something. Let's start from verse 14. How did we get there that King Nebuchadnezzar can recognize and pay attention to God of Israel? Remember, for them, deities are local deities. So the God of Babylon is stronger than the God of Israel because Marduk gave him the victory. But let's read verse 14. Then Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. And 15. He asked Arioch, the royal official, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. And let's read all the way to 18. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time and he would tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. Okay, so the king says to his astrologers, to his advisors and wise men, I had a dream that scared me to death. I want you to tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation. And the advisors say, no, 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 no. You give us the dream and we will provide the interpretation so that you are happy with and the budget for our jobs is secured for another year or two. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no, 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 guys. I had enough. You tell me both the dream and the interpretation. And then they realize they are in trouble. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, being the Nebuchadnezzar, using his position and power to destroy, he decides that either you do what I say or you die. And notice, verse 14, Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Aria. Why is this so urgent? He explained to him 
This is how the king sees it. So Daniel went in, requested that the king give him time. I will provide, but this doesn't work like that. I will provide the interpretation. So once again, he can proceed with discretion and prudence, come up with a suggestion. And here's the most important thing. God loves magicians. Daniel prays that their lives are saved, even astrologers. And God gives him the answer so that their lives can be saved. And then he acknowledges, as Iris said, God. And as a result of that, the king needs to admit, truly your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, that you have been able to reveal this mystery to me. And the king promoted Daniel, verse 49, and Daniel made a request to the king. So he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province. So he did not forget the team. He made sure that those who prayed with him and were part of the solution are part of the promotion as well. But God works with Nebuchadnezzar. So he gets the perspective that Marduk is not the strongest god but that the God of Israel is the Lord of lords and kings and kings. Now, he's going to process the dream the way he does. And in chapter 3, we learn what? That he builds a statue. The dimensions will be 666. And then he provides the satraps, the perfects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials to come and dedicate the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And notice the repetition. And so the satraps and the perfects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. The vision provides the climax of history will be the kingdom of God. You are the head of gold, but after you, another kingdom. After that, another kingdom. And at the end, it will be the kingdom of God that is going to triumph. Babylon is only a small part of God's plans, of God's kingdoms. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes up with another story, another narrative. And when there are people who dare to think differently... He's not going to tolerate any dissent, any opposing view. And so what is he going to do? He's going to use his power and the fiery furnace to get compliance. Notice he doesn't care for his own people. So the people who are asked to deliver them into the furnace, they die. But in the Babylonian Empire, people do not count. It doesn't matter as long as he gets what he wants. So they are thrown into the furnace. You know the end of the story. And what is the message in Daniel 3? Let's start from verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps and prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thank you. Notice the word in chapter 1, it was gave. In chapter 3, it's deliver. So in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar says, And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Remember, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that God of Israel, God of Daniel, is the one who reveals the mysteries. But he still falls back into thinking that he's not a powerful God, he is the God of Israelites. And so in verse 15, he says, who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pick up on that. And verse 17, they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, it's not going to change our inner disposition. So outward circumstances do not determine our loyalty to this God. Our loyalty to this God is based not on how life is going for us, if we are doing well or not well. 
So he is able to deliver, but that's beside the point. And then comes verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What made the greatest impression on him, on Nebuchadnezzar? Who was able to deliver his servants who trusted him. He sent his angel and delivered them. And verse 29, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. So now he recognizes the advantage, the preeminence of God of Israel in the realm of power. But notice how he conducts his business and runs his kingdom. Let's make the furnace a little bit higher. It will help you to bend your knees and bend your back so that you bow down to my power, to my influence. And when they show the strength of character, they are not going to do it. God delivers them and he gets his attention. All right, let's go to chapter 4. And what happens to chapter 4? Let's start with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that live throughout the earth. May you have abundant prosperity. The signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me, I am pleased to recount. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his sovereignty is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. Okay, and then he describes what happened, the story, and let's skip over to 34. When that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored the one who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my lords sought me out and I was reestablished over my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are truth, and all his ways are justice, and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. Thank you. Remember, what is the number of Babylon? What were the dimensions of the statue? To seven meters. Yes, yeah, six. Six is six, the number six. of Babylon, and so yeah. six, 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 six. So take a wild guess. Which word occurs six times in chapter four? What is it that Nebuchadnezzar is most impressed with? You have it in verse three, and you had it twice in the conclusion, and then it was in verses 22, 25, and 32, and then twice in verse 34, that's the one that... Terry read for us, and it's the word sovereignty. Okay, so he's impressed with sovereignty in verse 3, and then in his edict, for his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty, and his kingdom endures for generation to generation. And then you also have it in verse 22 and 25 and 32. So, do you see any difference between the edict that he gives at the end of chapter four and the one that he gave at the end of chapter three. Sherry? I'm just wondering if part of this is a knee-jerk reaction, realizing there's somebody out there so powerful and he's needing to make sure he's on his good side. So he's making some very dramatic explanations to make sure that he's on that team. That's right. And notice in verse three, when he is impressed with the power of God and he says, and if any person, nation or language blasphemy God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he shall be torn limb from limb and their houses turned into toilets because no other God is so powerful. He learned in chapter 2 that God can reveal mystery, that he has incredibly gracious servants because they find the solution. They remember the colleagues from the team to be promoted as well. They didn't think of themselves. And then in chapter 3, he gets the taste of the power of God. And then in chapter 4, he gets the taste of his sovereignty. So finally, God got to him and won him on his side. And as Graham would say, and the prize for that is, now you are going to write a chapter into the book. You will be in the club of the holy men of God who are writing the scriptures. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, I am writing this to you. Don't make the same mistake as I did. Neil? 
It's interesting to note that for seven years, Joseph was in charge of Egypt. And here we have Daniel in charge of Babylon. And he knows he can trust the guy because there will be people who will say, if the cat is not around, that is our opportunity. Let's seize the day. Let's seize the power. And he can leave the kingdom there in Daniel's hands. And he knows that he's not going to lust and grasp for that power because he doesn't serve a God of power. All right. How do you serve the mighty and powerful and rich? Remember, with poor, it was you fulfill their needs. Does it work with rich and powerful and mighty? No, it doesn't. So how do you serve them? How do you accomplish mission? You ask them to do something. So God asked him to write a chapter. Write your experiences out. You involve them. And you saw the progression, how Nebuchadnezzar got the picture that God is trying to incorporate Babylon and him to be part of that sovereign kingdom. And because he is so impressed with authority, which aspect of God's character is going to impress him the most? It's the sovereignty. It's not the gentleness. He would not respect a God like that, but it's his sovereignty. All right, let's go to Naaman. Okay, you know the story in 2 Kings 5. I'm not going to read 19 verses, but here is a little girl who is going to win the chief of the army staff, the chief of the generals of Syrian army. And he says, if only my lord, the general, could go to the prophet in my country. Notice she does not repay, as Daniel did, to the occupying force the way they treated them. Because of what you did to my family, to my country, I hope you die of this disease. And it kills you the sooner the better. No, if only I could do something good for you, but I can't. But I know someone who could do it, the prophet in Samaria. And she's so genuine, she's so believable that he convinced the king to write a letter. And of course, the king of Israel is shocked and says, oh, he's just looking for a reason to attack us. And then the prophet needs to enter the picture and say, nope, I deal with these things. This is not your business. You deal with running the kingdom. I do the promotion, the PR for God. Send him to me. To cut the long story short, thankfully, he has some good friends who say to him, if he asks you to do a difficult thing, wouldn't you gladly do it? So can you humble yourself a little bit and dip even in the river, which is not as up to your standards? Verse 11, Naaman became angry, went away saying, I thought that for me, because of who I am, he would surely come out, stand and call in the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure the disease. We have better rivers, better waters. He turned away and went away in rage. But his servants approached him and said to him, if the prophet commanded you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So if he asks you something easy, why don't you do it? Now let's pick it up. He comes back in verse 15 when after the miracle. And so 2 Kings 5, 15 on. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. He came and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will accept nothing. He urged him to accept, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god except the Lord. Okay, let's stop here. So he makes two petitions. What is the first one? Give me two mule loads of earth that I can take with me back to Syria. Now, why does he ask for that? Because in his mind, the God of Israel needs to be worshipped on the Israeli soil. So he's going to take the soil from Israel and bring it back so that he can worship the God of Israel in Syria. Uh, Iris? Well, it's interesting in light of the statement that he made before. There is no God in all the world except in Israel. So he makes a proclamation, there is no other. And yet he is still part of the cultural thinking of his time, that basically in every country there is a God. And if that country is the conquering power, that means that God of the conquering power is more powerful than the God of the defeated country. And now he takes the soil of the defeated country, of the lesser country, because he realizes they worship the true God. 
even though on the surface he represents the dominant power of the time. Yes, but he says there is no God except for God of Israel. But God of Israel needs to be worshipped in Israel. But I am in Syria, so I might be in bad books. So let me take the dirt with me so that I can worship the true God. Playing it safe, huh? <laughs> That's right. And notice the miracle itself is not going to upgrade your operating system. If I were a new boy, I would say write it down. God performs a miracle. He heals him of his leprosy, but it does not automatically upgrade, change his operating system. He still thinks like a Syrian soldier. And the prophet says, okay, you want the dirt? Here is your load. Take it. And then comes the second one, verse 18. But may the Lord pardon your servant on one count. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow down in the house of Rimmon, when I do bow down in the house of Rimmon, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one account. He said to him, go in peace. Do you understand his second petition? He says, there is something I need to tell you. Because of my job, part of my job description as the chief of the army generals, I need to go to the temple of my king's god, Rimon, and be part of the worship procedure. And the king is going to lean on me. And so when he bows down, I have to bow down with him. Now, let it be clear to me that I am not bowing down because I believe that Rimon is the god that should be worshipped. I am bowing down because it's part of my job, but I don't believe it in my heart. Now, how would you handle that? And in order not to embarrass you, let me tell you how I would have handled that as a young pastor. I would say to Naaman, Naaman, this is very nice. I appreciate your sincerity, but you need to make a decision. You need to make up your mind. If you want to serve God, start praying and God will give you a better job. You can't stay in this job. So you will pray, I will pray, and God will provide another job for you because you need to make up your mind and God is not going to accept this type of compromise. When you bow down, it's obvious that bowing down to an idol is idolatry. Now, thankfully, he didn't meet me as a young pastor because that's what I would have said to him. Thankfully, he met Elisha and he said to him, verse 19, go in peace, God understands. Do you remember the children kicking the ball in front of the church on the street? And the pastor sees them and says, boys, don't kick the ball here. It's dangerous. The ball will fall on the street and the car comes and hits you. This is a tragedy waiting to happen. Go into the court inside and kick the ball there. And they say, oh, no, no, we can't go and kick the ball there. Why? Because the elder would see us kicking the ball and he would not be pleased. And the pastor says... Yeah, but God can see you kicking the ball here. And the boys say, yeah, but God understands. Do you see how he's the child of his time? And Elisha says, this God understands. What's the lesson? Henry? We humans are very concerned on not doing anything that will offend God, forgetting that he is actually our friend. As Bram used to say so many times, we think that we need to win God and forget that he is the one trying to win us. Thank you, Iris. So these things have significance with for people who convert from other religions to Christianity, to Adventism. I'm thinking of a former student who became an Adventist and faced then the dilemma going back to China where they worship the ancestors. This showing respect to the ancestors is something very, very important. And so from a Western perspective, it's very clear. And the boundaries, this is right, this is wrong. But I think uh, the dilemma that Naaman pointed out here is very real to people. And part, I think, of our problem, for example, that made it so difficult to enter in any meaningful mission work with Muslims has been that we were so radical. We basically expected converts to go full force in confrontation with their family, with their culture. And then, of course, also in the Muslim side, it's the same. They feel betrayed if someone comes to worship the Lord Jesus. And so there is a disowning then on the other's hand. I think we have to learn to look more graciously and wider. We have to understand that if 
the faith comes in a form that invalidates everything and anything of the culture of origins. We make it very difficult for people to go that path. And we see here the prophet didn't make it difficult for Naaman to continue to worship the God that he had come face to face with, the God who had healed him, who had been gracious to him. And he, in his heart, was determined to continue to worship that God that he had found. And the prophet did not put burdens on this man that he wasn't meant to carry. To quote Acts 15, the decision of the first council in Jerusalem, let's not put a burden on these new converts, these Gentiles, that even our forefathers were not able to carry. Because if we do, we are hindering God's mission. We are on our own mission and not on God's mission. Go in peace. Now you serve God that is gracious and understanding. He is not easily offended. Now you are serving a different God. This God understands. He goes away as a leper and returns as a healed man and a disciple of God of Israel. But he is on a journey. He still has a lot of growing to do. And now you serve a God who understands the need for the growth. Jesus said, first the seed, then the stalk, the stem, and the head. God understands a process. It takes time. All right, let's go to John 3. Notice the God of Israel is not going to push him too quickly beyond his level of understanding. Sometimes when we come to an understanding of something, how many times you have seen in evangelistic campaigns, somebody hears a sermon on the mark of the beast, things fall into place, the puzzle. The first thing they do, they come back home and their relatives, they start explaining to them the mark of the beast and creates antagonism, destroys the relationships, etc. as Aris mentioned. And that's not the model of the Old or the New Testament. John 3, Nicodemus. Every time John is going to mention Nicodemus, he's going to say he's the one who came during the night. John 3, 1 and 2. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. All right. So Nicodemus arranges an audience with Jesus, but he says, I have one condition. By the way, you need to understand Nicodemus is a member of Sanhedrin. So he is the member of the top 70, the ruling party, the one that makes the decision. He made it to the very top. And here he arranges with the disciples and say, I want to meet your master, but I have one condition. It needs to be during the night and nobody will ever know about this. And Jesus says, okay, bring him in. 2 a.m., here is the secret place. That's where we are going to meet. Nicodemus comes and says, Rabbi, you are a teacher. I am a teacher. Let's discuss theology. And by the way, you are a pretty good teacher because no one could do these things unless God was with that person. And I am a pretty good teacher. So let's discuss some heavy theological weightlifting. And Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born anoten. Now, anoten can be translated from above or again. Without beating the bush, Jesus says to him, we are not going to have a discussion on theology. Let me tell you, you need to be born anoten. To which Nicodemus replies, what kind of nonsense is that? How can I be born again? Notice, instead of from above, he chooses the translation again. Both are grammatically possible. But he chooses the one that allows him to point out the nonsense of Jesus' speech and says, I cannot crawl back into my mother again and be born the second time. And Jesus says, no, 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 you need to be born from above. Now, how wonderful that Nicodemus met Jesus and not me as a young pastor. Growing up under communism for 30 years, let me tell you, it was not easy to be an Adventist and to be a pastor in a totalitarian state. Because if you decided to be on the side of Jesus and God and Christianity, you had to pay the price. And when it came to the secondary school, I applied to economical school, not because I was that much interested in economy, but I knew that in economical school, only girls applied for that. And they had only one or two boys in the class. So there were not more than five boys in the whole school. And so if a boy applied, they would automatically take them because they would take any of them. 
And I got a no answer and my father went to ask, so why didn't you accept him? He has good grades. He wants to study here. And the director said, I'm sorry, Mr. Duda, but the regional party committee decided that we cannot accept your son to study here, but to pay the price. And that was only the secondary school, not to mention the university and other things. So if Nicodemus came to me as a young pastor, I would say to him, now I agreed to meet you at 2 a.m., but here is the thing, Nicodemus, you are not willing to pay the price. That's why you want to meet me in the darkness. So I have prepared a baptismal pool. The water is already warm. Tell me, are you ready or not? And you know what Jesus does? He lets him walk away. He says, I am not going to discuss theology with you. There are certain things that you need to understand. And being born from above is for you just like for any other sinner. And uh, the discussion is over. Jesus lets him walk away. And you know what is the result? Let's go to John 7, 43. Now tell me, which evangelist would do this when you have such a huge fish almost in your net? He comes to you during the night, willing to meet with Jesus, and Jesus accepts his conditions, meets him at his hour, at his place, and then he lets him walk away, doesn't need to capitalize, give him a speech on the price of discipleship and the glory of man being more important than the glory of God. Let's go to chapter 7, verse 43. So there was a division in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why did you not arrest him? The police answered, Never has anyone spoken like this. Then the Pharisees replied, Surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Has any one of the authorities or of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, asked, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? They replied, Surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. So here we are. Jesus lets him walk away, doesn't give him a lecture on the price of discipleship, doesn't need to tell him that today if you hear him, do not harden your hearts because you never know whether you are going to wake up tomorrow. No blackmail, nothing. Three years later, when there is a discussion in Sanhedrin and the police come back and say, we were just not able to arrest him. This guy is just amazing. You know what argument are the leaders going to use? Ad hominem. Are you deceived too? Only the people who are stupid, the ham ha'aretz, the people who do not follow the law, who are not serious about the religion, they consider him a prophet. To which Nicodemus says, excuse me, chair, I have a point of order. We are not following our working policy. We are violating the rules on which we operate. We cannot judge a person guilty without first hearing them and giving them the chance to explain why they do what they do. And what's the answer? No point of order. We don't need to follow our own rules. And a little bit of propaganda. Search the scriptures and find out that no prophet ever arrives from Galilee, which is not true. Just check your Old Testament. Nicodemus knows that. And it's not Jesus who helps him to see the light. It's the Pharisees who help him to see what's going on here. I am sitting with these guys who are not even willing to follow their own procedures. They are willing to twist the Bible to get what they want, the outcome. It's not about reviving the nation. It's not about serving God. It's not about God's glory. This is about personal positions and the advantages of power. I'm out of here. And let's read 1939. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 
Okay, thank you. So what's going on here? We are meeting Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and suddenly they are the wealthy aristocrats. They are in the ultimate inner ring, inner circle of the society. They are among the top 70 men in Sanhedrin. But now they are acting positively towards Jesus. In Mark 5, 42, it says that they boldly ask for the body of Jesus. Now imagine the courage it took to ask for the body of Jesus. Romans just tried Jesus and found him guilty of high treason. The Jewish Sanhedrin found him guilty of blasphemy. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, for the first time in their life, they are willingly to say publicly what went on in secret in their heart. John makes it clear that they were secret followers of Jesus. They liked him, they followed him, but they didn't want anybody to know. And now when it's really dangerous, suddenly they publicly go and ask for the body and they are willing to risk their position to bury Jesus. Their attitude towards their own status and power has changed. And not only that, as you have read, and also in Mark 15:46, when somebody died in Palestine, they washed the body and wrapped it in linen, and they anointed it in spices and perfumes. Now, the Jews did not do embalming like Egyptians. It was just a simple act of love, but it was still gory. To take down the cadaver, dirty, beaten, stomach-turning, loathsome, dirty, awful job. So guess who is going to do this job in the society. Women did. Slaves had to do it. And if they didn't have slaves because they were poor, then the women had to do it. Certainly not the prominent man, but here it reads in Mark 15, 46, that Joseph and Nicodemus are doing the job and the women are watching. Now, if Joseph was like all other men in Judaism and he sees women watching, you know what will be his response? Hey, women, you come and do this. This is not my job. I am an important person. I don't need to do this. But suddenly, those who are in the inner circle, in the top echelon of the power, act differently because something has happened in their lives. Something has changed. They serve a different master now. All right. Now, what's the lesson? How do you do mission to rich and powerful? What do you learn from Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea? Iris? I think what this story shows so beautifully is that God, I think we saw it throughout all of these stories, that there are several touch points. They have several encounters. Nicodemus had repeated encounters with Jesus, and he was an educated man, and there was a sincerity, a sincere core in him where he perceived very clearly. I mean, even in that encounter at night, he already saw, wow, but this man is doing, you can't fake this. You cannot just, he's not just one of these lunatics who is a self-appointed prophet. He saw what Christ was made of and he was drawn by it. And I think the take home is never to jump ahead of God, but to allow for God to orchestrate in our lives encounters with people that we're unlikely to meet and Possibly we meet these people from a very humble position. And then to just show flag and to testify to the kind of God that we believe in and that we worship. But leave the outcomes to God. And after several encounters, sometimes God does break through, even in the lives of unlikely people who have worldly possessions, who have power. But if there is a core in them that really seeks for God. God is willing to reveal himself to them as much as to any earnest seeker. Amen. Henry put in the chat, how many years did it take for Nebuchadnezzar? How many years did God work on him, Henry? According to the chronologies, I mean, a gross chronology that I had is about 20 years, a little bit over 20 years. So that means patience. This is God's time, and we sometimes want to get our numbers <laughs> as soon as possible or give up on people. God is taking eternity to win us, not because it's not important, but because it is important. And I think that what these stories have in common is that it is not our mission. It was not Paul or Peter that was able to reach to Nicodemus. It was God himself because he knew how to reach out and treat the arrogant Nicodemus and allow him that space. 
He says, well, you want to do it at night? I will do it at night, even though I am God and you know it, I will meet at night. That humility, he is not asking us to have better knowledge, more knowledge, better brains, but a better heart to become a better person. Quoting you, once you said, if the doctrines that we have have not made us a better person, it has not helped at all. Yes. So here is a carpenter from Galilee, yet he treats him with respect. He gives him a respect as a member of Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus reciprocates and say, I don't see you as a carpenter from Galilee. I see you as a man of God. God is on your side. There is no question. With Naaman, he works over a period of time and says, don't worry, I understand. You are on a journey. We are just starting. I am not going to be offended. I understand there will be ups and downs, falls and victories but we are on this together. With Nicodemus, he doesn't push him into the baptism pool so that he can report, we've got a big fish, so that he can feed the numbers and the crowds and say, somebody important is on my side as well. No, he can let him walk away because he knows he will come back at the right time. Jesus did not push Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus didn't push Nicodemus, and they do come. Michael? As far as they were concerned originally, and certainly the Sanhedrin, was Jesus was a country bumpkin. How could he possibly be the Messiah? And it makes me reflect upon my own life and that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. That notion that I'm right and you're wrong. If I'm unwilling to listen to another point of view, I may miss the whole message altogether. Yeah. Thank you. Rita? God recognizes that it takes us sinful humans, time to process what we're being confronted with or what we're being told. It's very difficult for us to change our minds about a subject or a person on a first encounter. And it takes some time to process it. We have to unlearn a lot of things before we can learn the new things. And God wants us to learn the new things. God wants us to be confident that we've made the right choice. And thinking about that, it seems to me that when people are kind of coerced or pushed into a baptismal pool, that that's almost bound to be a failure in the long term. God doesn't push anybody into any decision. Yes, he can work with the timeline, as Karen put it, and lead them gently, a little at a time, and kindly. At their own pace, as David and Terry put it in the chat. And this is what these people need. They cannot be a project of someone else. Robert? I was thinking about the time at the end. And from this perspective of the great controversy, Christ is waiting for a group of people to represent him correctly. And the message of good news about the Heavenly Father is what we have to get across somehow to the whole world. We can all use another friend. And Christ says that God is our friend. Thank you. Karen? I often see that people are rude, even disrespectful and selfish to expect people to perform at their time frame the way they want. And when they bring them to evangelistic campaigns, etc., it's like, do it, do it now. And the Holy Spirit works much more gently on that. And we can see from this lesson how gently and kindly and slowly God works, and we need to work with the pace of God and the Holy Spirit and not our own desires. It's part of good parenting. Just mm. because your daughter cannot cook as quickly and efficiently as you do, and you say to her, go away, let me do it myself, it's not going to teach her. So mm. respect the timetable of someone else. Mm. And these people are respected and admired in the society and looked up to, when we treat them as a mission project, I mean, it's in insulting, it's rude. And God doesn't treat them like that. He respects their timetable because ultimately he wants to win them. So this is the important aspect of mission to the rich and powerful. Don't pursue them. Treat them with respect and then involve them. They are humans like everybody else and they want to be involved. Ultimately, they have needs and although their position being part of the inner circle satisfies something in them, ultimately their money and position do not buy them happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of service. And so God always involves them. He asked Nebuchadnezzar to write a chapter in the Bible. He asked Naaman to be part of that running Syrian kingdom in a way with new understanding of God who is not easily offended. 
he asks Nicodemus to consider what it means to be born from above. And when the time comes, he says, point of order, shouldn't we be respecting our own rules and policies? Josephus of Arimathea, he realizes, and now I am part of this Sanhedrin that condemned him to death. There is something wrong. I need to be involved. And he does something for Jesus that no Jewish male in that society would do. All right. Yeah, they are as lonely and love-hungry and hurting as any other human being. Thank you, Karen, for that. And finally, when we speak about God reaching out to rich and powerful, you know what's the problem? We all think it's about somebody else. We don't see each other. We don't see ourselves as rich. But if you look at number 10, actually you are rich. Whether you see yourself as rich doesn't matter. And it's because God is pursuing rich people like you. You and I have the chance. And it's easy to see as rich and powerful somebody else. But all of us have a sphere of influence. All of us have a position that we can use to bless someone else. And just because God is interested in us, we need to be interested in this segment of the society. So it doesn't matter how much or how little you have, your position, your sphere of influence, your wealth, they all give us the capacity to give and to bless someone else. Jim Collins, a management guru, said it so well, get involved in something that you care so much about that you want to make it the greatest it can possibly be. Not because what you got out of it, but just because it can be done. And the rich and powerful, they understand this. Harvard University Business Review says the people in top positions are not motivated by money. It's not the salary that determines that they do what they do. They do it for the sheer joy of the making difference and accomplishing something. And once you understand this principle, then you understand why God is trying to include Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and Naaman and Syria and Nicodemus and Judaism and rich young ruler and Joseph of Arimathea and you and me into his kingdom because all of us in our own sphere of influence, in our own unique way, can make some difference. Let's pray. The Lord is beyond our comprehension that you would notice each one of us and you call us to be part of your kingdom and part of your mission. So we are eternally thankful for being able to get a little grasp of what we are trying to accomplish and the liberating message that you are bringing into this world and the redemption that you want to accomplish in the life of each one of us and help us not to impose on other people with good intentions anything, thinking that we are serving you while we hurt people in the process. Help us to learn from you and see how gently you dealt with tyrants like Nebuchadnezzar, with powerful people like Naaman, important people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea or Zacchaeus, and help us to see that when we insist on having our own way and disrespecting the way you operate, that it makes you sad and that we are the ones who lose in the end, like the rich young ruler. Help us to treat other people with dignity and respect so that we can model how you treat us each day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.